Welcome to episode 24 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Welcome, welcome to episode 24 and we've got some more great questions today. Back on my own again after last week's experiment, I guess it was, in terms of having some live Q&A, some live questions from an audience. They were a group of guys on my Bushcraft Essentials course, two-day weekend course, and we had some very wet and windy weather, but we still managed to get that out. And if you haven't watched that already, please have a look and let me know in the comments below that video, whether it's on my blog or on YouTube, let me know what you think of that format. It's, it's, it's good for me to know. Um, I've got some format, so uh, format, got some feedback so far on that format, but um, be good to know what you think. So just, even if you think, like it, don't like it, prefer the normal one, I like this aspect, whatever it is, it can just literally be just a quick comment, quick sentence that helps me know whether I should be doing more of those sorts of things or whether I should stick to this one-on-one -on -one format with me answering questions that you've sent in. Um, I'm not saying I'm going to do one or the other exclusively, but it's just good to know whether you like the mix or whether you just like the straight down the line usual format. That's good for me to know. Right, so I've got a bunch of questions ready to go. Um, one thing I will say though, in terms of some of the questions that have been coming through recently, um, there's been a few, there's a bit of a trend towards people sending me a link to something somewhere else on the net, whether it's an article in, online or whether it's a YouTube video that somebody else has produced and this, somebody you know, sends me a question and says, I watched this or read this, what do you think? As an Ask Paul Kirtley question. Um, First off, that's a little bit lazy. Formulate your question. What, you, what do you want? To, if you send me a 10 minute video clip, I don't really know what you're asking about. Are you asking about this bit of the video? Are you asking about that part of the technique? I don't know what you're asking. I don't know what your problem with it is, whether you have a problem with it. Um, and secondly, it doesn't mesh into this format at all. I need to be able to read the question. And so if you, if you send me a question saying, here's a link, um, what do you think? That doesn't work in this format, sorry. So um, you'd be better off saying, I watched a YouTube video where somebody was doing this, this and this uh, with fire lighting or cordage making or whatever it is. Uh, what do you think of this technique? Is there a better one? I've tried it, it doesn't work. Whatever your actual issue with it is or question about it is, let me know what the question is rather than just sending me a link saying, what do you think? Because that doesn't work in this format. Sorry, I'm not gonna answer that question. And also more importantly, if I'm in the field, which I am a lot in the summer, I'm running lots of courses, I'm doing all this from my phone. I am not gonna be watching 10 minute YouTube clips on my phone, running my battery down, trying to formulate a, an answer to your question. It just doesn't work for that logistical reason either. So send me a written question, keep it concise, ask me what the question is, ask me what your issue is, and I'll answer it. Otherwise, it's just too vague, it's too open-ended, and I'm sorry it doesn't fit into this, into this format. All right, so with that said, let's get into this episode. Now, I have to apologize to Dave Wellsby. In episode 22, 
I read out his question title about uh, tracking, trapping and hunting, and then I didn't actually answer the question in the episode. Um, I had a lot of questions. I think we did seven or eight anyway, and I just, for some reason, I skimmed over it. Apologies, but I'm going to answer that one first here. So Dave's question. Dave Wellsby also goes under the name of Wellsby Roots on Twitter and Facebook and um, YouTube as well. Um, his question was, I was wondering what resources you would recommend books, people, web pages, etc., in learning about tracking, hunting and trapping. What are your thoughts on trapping for long-term sustainable living? Well, that's quite a big question, Dave, but it's a good question. Um, I'll answer the first part second and the second part first, actually. I think logically that makes more sense. What are your thoughts on trapping for long-term sustainable living? Well, it is possible in some parts of the world still to be living off the land in terms of trapping and hunting, um, whether that's in a traditional way or whether that's using modern tools, um, modern weapons in particular, modern hunting rifles and those sorts of things, or bow hunting, some places that's legal, other places it's illegal. But there's a small enough density of people and a large enough density of animals that that's possible. The question is, is that, the other question of course is is that ethical and the other question is if we all decided to do it it certainly wouldn't work so um you know where you are dave dave's in um ontario in canada where you are in canada there are places further north in ontario and going over into manitoba and further afield as you go further north and in quebec where there aren't many people and there are also the rights to hunt and trap still for a lot of fur trapping still goes on in those places um, that's probably sustainable economically on a small scale as long as your expenses are not high. Whether or not you consider that ethical is a different issue. Um, so you can make a living that way. I know some people still do that. Um, also, in terms of getting food, it's probably possible. You don't need many uh, white-tailed deer, for example, to keep you going for quite a long time. There's lots of uh, other uh, berries and nuts and and food resources over the course of the seasons that you could be collecting and preserving if you've got a cabin in the woods. I think it's feasible in some parts of the world near where you are to still do that. Would it be feasible here in the UK? Not really, unless you've got a large tract of land um, to be living very close to the land in that way. Um, it, it, it's a very artificial environment and there are a lot of people here. So it depends where you are. Parts of Russia, yeah, you could probably do it. And people do still live off the land in Africa, but you've got to remember that it's about an intimate knowledge of the environment. Unless you're using modern hunting equipment, it's going to be difficult for you just to slot into a traditional hunter-gatherer way of life. It's almost impossible without many, many years of study of the techniques and the skills and the tree and plant identification and the uses um, in that environment. It's not impossible, but um, it's difficult. So yes, if you go out with a rifle and traps and you build or use a cabin, in some parts of the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Boreal, you could probably do that. In other parts of the world, it's it's not so viable in, in, in the modern world, if you're talking about stepping aside from the modern world. And then, of course, you've got, you know, 
places in the world, um, tropical places where people still live very close to the land and get a lot of their food resources from the land. But there is so much pressure on um, tropical rainforests, particularly in South America, that how long that some of those lifestyles are sustainable, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of friction um, and a lot of persecution by um, people with money and people with power in South America who are pressurizing native peoples who are still trying to live close to the land. So um, it's a multifaceted question. I think what you're asking is in your part of the world, would it be possible to go out and hunt and trap? Yes, I think it would, um, but you've got to find the right place to do that where you've got permission to hunt, permission to trap. You've got to have your own um, concession, if you like, and be able to have a cabin there and have the skill set to do it and be able to not just hunt and trap, but collect other resources so that you can live sustainably around the year. I think it would be possible for some people to do that. Would it be possible for everybody to do that? No, because there's too many of us and there's too little resources. That's that question. So in terms of recommendations, books, people, web pages, etc., learning about tracking, hunting and trapping, um, I think it's worth making a distinction between tracking and trapping. Um, a lot of people amalgamate the two. They're a kind of separate subject in a way, although they do clearly feed into each other in terms of supporting each other. The more you can identify tracks and signs of animals, the better you can place traps and those sorts of things. But that's not the only reason to learn about tracking, of course. There are many people who are just interested in wildlife observation, that just want a deeper connection with the environment to be able to see what's there, just in the same way as they want to understand what all the trees and the plants are. They want to be able to uh, navigate well through an environment. They want to be able to um, see all the tracks and signs of the animals. It's just opening your eyes and being able to read the landscape in, in, in many different ways. So lots of people want to learn to track just for those reasons. And there's a difference between tracking, i.e. following tracks and sign, to an animal or a person, we're animals as well, but to, to a target and identifying tracks and sign. Again, the two sit by side by side, but a lot of people think that tracking is going, oh, that was a fox, that was a deer. That's not tracking, that's track and sign identification. Tracking is being able to follow a series of tracks and sign to a target, and that's different, and that's very difficult to learn, if not impossible to learn from a book. Track and sign identification, there's some good books out there, and I will put some recommendations in the show notes, um, some for Europe and some for North America. I'll put those in the show notes on my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk under episode 24 because there's a couple that spring to mind off the top of my head but there are others on my shelf at home that I will want to make sure I've got the right titles and, and the details for you so I'll do that but in Europe for example Preben and Preben is the classic one animal tracks and sign but there are many other good ones if you want to go into de detail more on bird tracks more on identifying bird feathers um, more on identifying um, other aspects of you know tracks and sign in terms of droppings and all of those sorts of things you can go into more detail on particular species so i'm going to put some resources up on my blog for you um, for starters in terms of trapping there's lots of different um, resources some of them are modern books some of them are older books um, i can't name one that's particularly good that's going to give you everything um, and frankly, again, you can have a book full of traps, but it doesn't tell you where to set it, when to set it. Um, 
there's lots of bad drawings of traps in books that are based on what works in reality, but the drawing's not that great, and then you can't you can't um, you can't replicate it. So again, my recommendation would be get as many resources as you can. And it sounds like I'm dodging the question. I'm not. I can't say this one book is the only book that you need. Um, what I think you need to do is look at some of the survival manuals, look at some books on trapping, look at some of the old woodcraft books, look at some of the old books on pioneer um, skills. Look, um, if you can in your part of the world, you're in Ontario, find some people who still trap further north and spend some time with them. Um, there might be some guys on native reserves who are also gonna be able to show you some trapping skills. Um, go out and learn from somebody who knows where to set them, when to set them, how to set them. Um, that's, that's the way to learn. Um, learning some of this stuff from books, it, you can get to a point where you can make a trap mechanism that works when you throw a stick in it, but then where do you put it? Have you set it right to catch a hare? Have you set it right to catch a ptarmigan? You know, a lot of the stuff that I've learned, I've learned directly from people. Yes, I've read books, but it never really worked until somebody showed me, you know, how to set a, a row of ptarmigan snares in Northern Sweden, for example. It doesn't work until somebody really shows you. Um, frankly, that's still the way to learn. And um, the way to shortcut, you know, of course you can go out and learn by your own experience and trial and error and get it wrong for five years until you start getting it right. But other people have already done that. That's what I'm trying to say. So go and benefit from the experience of people who still know how to do this. Um, and yeah, that's hard. That's harder than reading a book in your cabin or reading a book in your flat or reading a book in your home or reading a book by the campfire in the woods. But what do you actually want to do? Do you want to read a book on traps or do you want to learn how to trap? And if you want to learn how to trap, go and find somebody who knows how to do it and learn from them. Yes, you might have to pay them. Yes, you might have to do something for them in return, but that's always the case. If you want to learn, um, go and find somebody to learn from. We're great learning machines when we're learning from other people. Uh, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, we've passed on practical skills like trapping, like tracking, like fire lighting from one generation to the next. And that's still a very, very efficient way of doing it because you're, you're shortcutting that learning from experience trial and error that you get from just looking at a diagram and trying to implement it yourself because it's in isolation, it's in a vacuum. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. I will chuck a couple of resources up there for the, for the tracking. Um, in terms of track and sign identification because that's useful as a field guide just in the same way as it's useful to have a field guide for tree and plant identification but in terms of actually implementing it you've still got to go out and practice you can't just sit in isolation reading a book and then go out into the field and say yep that's that's a lynx that's a bobcat that's a an american porcupine that's a that's a, an elk that's a white-tailed deer. You can't do that just from reading a book. You've got to go out and apply it in the field, take the book with you, iterate back and forwards, take photographs. Um, again, go out with somebody who knows as well because that will shortcut the process massively. Hopefully that helps, Dave. Um, big question, it was a short question, but it's a big question. Right, let's crack on. Okay, question from Andrew Casey. Who was just on my navigation course this weekend and where I am right now just to say um, I'm in the remains of the camp that we had this weekend that was our base camp for the weekend navigation course um, I stayed over last night um, to record this episode and to and to clear up today as well got a few other things to do um, around and about we've got more courses next week 
So that's where I am. That's why there's a parachute above me and I've got the tripod and the kettle and a fire ticking over here. That Just to, just to let you know where I am um, and why I'm here. So Andrew is one of the students on my course this weekend, but this is a question he asked me quite a long time ago. Andrew, apologies for that, um, on Instagram. And I'll put the picture up here on the video, um, a screenshot. But his question is, hi Paul, I'm interested in trying making some birch bark containers. The quality of bark in my area is substandard. Would you recommend buying bark online as I've seen some for sale uh, for florists, for example? Any help on this would be appreciated. All the best, Andrew. Um, good question, Andrew. And it's one that isn't unique to you um, in the sense that people have asked me, particularly about bark in the UK and in parts of Europe, saying it's silver birch bark, it's too thin, I can't make all of these containers, whether it's a small matchbox or a, um, a bark container for holding liquids or a, a container for, you know, whether it's making an arrow um, quiver or whatever they're trying to make. Um, it's not thick enough, they can't make a container, they can't make a box, they can't make a, um, a tub or whatever it is they're trying to make. That's because a lot of these skills, a lot of these designs as well come from North America or Northern Eurasia. And birch bark grows thicker where it's colder. So as you get into the boreal forest in Northern Sweden, for example, as opposed to um, in the deciduous woodlands of Southern Europe or, or Central Europe, it's colder and the bark's thicker. Um, and the, the reason it's thicker is because the trees, just like I've got an extra fleece on today because it's a bit colder, um, the bark grows thicker to protect the tree. Um, in colder environments, it grows thicker. The same in uh, the continental climate of um, North America or Ontario, for example, the bark tends to grow thicker there. And it's not silver birch there, it's different species of birch, but the, again, for similar reasons, the bark grows thicker. Um, so in trying to, for example, there's a, there's a small birch log going into this fire here. The bark on that's very thin. Um, and it will never grow as thick as bark in Russia, for example, if you go up to, um, you know, somewhere near St. Petersburg or into Siberia, um, or you go into Lithuania or Finland or into the north of Sweden, the bark's going to be thicker there. So perhaps there's somebody you can make contact with online that is living in those parts of the world who maybe can send some to you. That might be, you know, you've got skills as well. Maybe there's something that you can make or send to them um, and they can send you some bark. Yes, you can buy it online for florists and whatnot. I suspect you'll end up paying over the odds uh, for those sorts of supplies. Um, and it's not, it might, it may well be thicker and be designed for making flower arrangements and shaped, but is it still going to be good enough for what you want? I don't know. And it might be batch by batch. Some is better than others. Um, and again, um, if you can, if you're traveling and if you go to somewhere where, um, you know, the bark is thicker, then maybe collect some and bring it back. You occasionally get some quite thick bark. So Spoons, who works with me, for example, he was on holiday in Norfolk recently on a camping trip with his, with his wife, and he found a, a downed um, birch tree dead and had really quite thick bark on it, but it's still not as thick as some of the stuff you're gonna get from northern climes. So it's really a climactic thing um, and, 
you're going to have to get some from further north. Well, paying for it online now is probably probably not ideal because it's, you're going to pay a lot for it. So I know I'm kind of prevaricating there and, and giving you a definite answer. I would say try, these days we can make contact with people, you know, find a Facebook group with some guys from Finland or Sweden, ask them if they'll send you some birch bark in exchange for something. That's what I'd be doing. And you make a nice contact with somebody with similar interests there as well. That's what I'd be doing, Andrew. Right. Bit of wind coming up. I don't know if you can hear that on the microphones. Next question, finding decent firewood. This is from Richard Morgan. And he says, following on from your recent winter bushcraft camping tips video, I found one thing that puts me off um, and that's my ability to find good quality firewood. I've always had difficulty spotting dead standing wood and in winter, short of taking wood with me, I struggle to find dry firewood. Could you please do a video on finding winter firewoods, please? Um, well, I'm not gonna make a video right now, Richard, but I'll answer, some I'll answer the question. Um, you've kind of answered it to, for yourself already. You, dead standing firewood, dead standing wood is the best firewood because um, it's still upright. If you've got a log lying down on the ground, there's much more of its surface subject to rain. And also part of that, uh, the circumference of that log is gonna be in contact with the ground, which in this environment, northern temperate in the winter or the early spring, is going to be very wet on the ground. It's wet on the ground here. Um, don't know if you can see in the camera, my knees are a bit damp. That's because I've been kneeling around the campfire. And even though this area has been under cover for the past few days with a parachute, it's still a bit damp around the fire here. Kneeling down is, uh, is damp on my knees. Everything on the ground is going to be damp. So you, you're absolutely right. You want standing firewood because the, the rain incidence is more vertical. Yes, it might come in at a bit of an angle if it's particularly windy, but still the amount of rain hitting that that wood is much much less so for for starters anybody that's listening to this looking for good firewood in winter dead standing now that's for stuff that's a bit bigger if you want small kindling you know um, those of you that are watching the, uh, the watching the video here you know small matchstick thin sticks like this that i'm holding up that are remains of my kindling from this morning um, there's quite a lot of conifers in the area here. Um, there's Douglas fir, there's some Scots pine, there's some spruce, and they're all competing for the light. They're going up. One of my winter, northern winter fire lighting videos where I go and break off the spruce twigs. There are similar small twigs on the small Douglas firs here and the small spruces. Um, they're well protected from the weather because you've got the green, um, spire-like canopies above that are really quite dense and the tree doesn't maintain um, the branches lower down because it's not worth it they don't get a lot of light there they don't for the effort and the energy required to maintain living needles there they don't get a lot of light on them they don't really photosynthesize so they die off and also there's an element of fire protection as well as uh, coniferous trees grow taller a lot of the lower branches die off and that's a fire ad adaptation so that if there's a forest fire the bark protects the tree from the uh, the fire going through in the undergrowth and there aren't branches low down so that um, they, they don't catch light so the tree survives a, a fire through the understory and and continues to grow and you'll see that in you know scots pine and jack pine so scots pine in in eurasia jack pine in north america they're you know classic examples of fire adapted species 
and um, when they get large in that way they don't have lower branches for those reasons um, so lower branches of coniferous trees are a really good source of kindling so that's the first lesson again it doesn't have to be a dead tree it's just the branch the, the, the small branches are dead and you want to be going for uh, matchstick thickness as your first um, gear if you like of kindling and you start off in your car in first gear or on your bike in a low gear and then you go into second gear you don't want to start trying to to drive off in fifth gear, you don't want to try starting to light larger firewood. You start with the small stuff, then you want to go to finger thickness stuff. And again, a lot of that can be broken off um, trees um, that's already dead, particularly in coniferous woodland. Um, the other source, of course, of, of, of matchstick thickness twigs is birch. Lots of dead birch around, particularly in the winter because it gets blown off the trees and it tends to be hanging up in amongst either birch trees or other local trees where they've, the branches have come down, they've got caught, the twigs have come down, they've got caught and they're still there. So they're up off the ground, you can pick those. They burn very well because they're full of uh, oils. And again, the, um, the coniferous stuff tends to burn well because it's got some resin in it as well. So they're your good sources of kindling. Again, how to light a fire with one match, video, sorry, not video, article on my blog, that goes through both of that and how to do a fire lay and get your fire going with just a small flame. That's in my, that's on my blog. I'll link to it in the show notes. So that's your sources of kindling. Birch and coniferous woodland, um, you're gonna find all over the place. They're very common and widespread resources, which is why we teach those as a sort of baseline source of kindling. Um, finger thickness, again, you're going to be able to get that dead branches, break them off, um, preferable to collecting them off the ground. The alternative to that is dead standing stuff that's relatively small diameter. So maybe um, if you're in more coniferous woodland uh, where you have some trees that die off, you should be able to tell if they're dead or not. And this is, I think this is the key thing that you're having a problem with. Is a tree dead or not? Now with a coniferous tree, um, a needle tree, most of the needle trees, with the exceptions of larch and tamarack, most of them, particularly ones that you're gonna find in the UK, even if they've been planted, are evergreen. Which means even in the winter, if they're alive, they will have green needles on them. And okay, they might not have live branches low down, but look up. If there's green needles up there, it's alive. If it's dead twigs and branches all the way up, it's dead. Um, and then you can just have a, you know, you can have a little look on the bark and just to see if it's, if it's live or not. Again, a lot of trees that um, are, have been dead for some time, the bark starts to degrade. You just look around you and make a comparison. Look at one that's got green needles on it. Look at the bark, look how it looks healthy. Then look at one that looks dead all the way up. Look at the bark, it's starting to degrade, it's starting to flake off, etc., um, etc. Et it doesn't look healthy that's gonna tell you that it's dead. Um, and similarly um, with deciduous trees, even though it's harder to tell if they're alive in the winter or not because they're dormant, all the, tree, all the leaves have come off, um, the bark will still look healthy. It won't be flaking off in big clumps. It there won't be rotten bits. You know, it's gonna be whole. The skin of the tree, if you like, is gonna still be healthy. And you can, again, look between the different ones and you'll pick out ones that don't look right. With deciduous trees, even though they're not in leaf in winter, they still have buds. The buds are ready to go for the next season. The buds develop before the winter and they sit there dormant. So if, there, if the tree is dead and all the branches are dead and there are no live buds, 
then that's a good indication that the tree is dead. So you need to look at these details to ascertain whether or not the tree is dead or not. And again, you don't want to be knocking down great big trees anyway. It's, the smaller stuff is what you want because you can then split that out if you need to. You can make splints, feather sticks, if you need to, if you can't find other kindling. And again, go to my blog. There's a couple of articles on how to make feather sticks there. Um, split out the log with an axe or a bat on it with your knife. And even if you're in quite cold conditions, unless you're sleeping out in front of a fire with no sleeping equipment whatsoever, most of the time you don't need to burn anything bigger than wrist thickness. So as long as you can identify that a tree, whether it's a maybe a small birch tree or a small conifer that's you know a couple of inches in diameter, two to three inches in diameter, is dead and standing, that's great firewood. You can create everything that you need from that. You can make feather sticks, you can make splints, you can make larger fuel, and you can keep it in the round to feed in for a star fire like I've got here. Um, you know, I've got birch of maybe two and a half inches diameter coming in here. I've got a bit of beech and there's a bit of... Um, a bit of uh, last bit of uh, Douglas fir feeding in there as well. Just bits that I've collected from around here. Dead, hung up branches mainly. Um, one dead standing birch tree that was clearly dead. Um, that's all you need and it's ticking over and it's keeping quite a large kettle hot. So that's the stuff to be looking for. And um, hopefully that helps. There's quite a lot of... Um, quite a lot of detail. But look, it's about observation. Look at what's live, look at what's dead. Um, and also, the last thing I would say on that is when you're out in the summer, look at the deciduous trees that are alive and it's easier to see the ones that are dead because they don't have any leaves on. Look at the differences between the branches and the bark um, on the dead ones and the branches and the bark on the live ones. And that's going to be the same in the, in the winter. It's just that the live ones won't have leaves on and you can build that database up in your head. That's, that's the only way to do it. It's just experience and look at the differences between what's live and what's dead but there's lots of things that will tell you that um, as, I've, as I've already said so hopefully that helps better move on next one I've got a few more questions to move through yet uh, this one is from Philip Bell and his question is about portages and canoe trips he says hi Paul I've always wanted to do a multi-purpose sorry I've always wanted to do a multi-day canoe trip in Canada, but long portages sound like hard work. Do you think hardships add to the enjoyment of the outdoors, or are they just something that should be endured to get to the places you want to go to or see what you want to see? I can't help but think that there is a bit of cognitive bias going on, i.e. I get myself into these situations, therefore I must enjoy them. Um, and again, there's a link to something which I haven't looked there, uh, looked at there, Philip, so I can't comment on that, to be honest. Um, and he says, see you and your team at the end of April for the Essential Bushcraft course. I'll be the one on the bike. Um, okay, Ooh, got my phone. Um, hardships in the outdoors. For some people, just being outdoors is hard um, because, I'll be brutal here, some people are just soft. Um, and I mean soft because they've never, they've never had to, they've had like, life has been easy for a lot of people. In the first world, you can have a very easy life. Even if you are in the poorest 
part of um, you know the social economic scale in a first world country um, life is not that hard and I'm sorry if anybody disagrees with that but just go to a developing country um, and you'll see what I mean go to a really poor part of South America go to a really poor part of Africa go to a really poor part of Asia that is a harder life that a lot of people still have in those circumstances um, in Western Europe and in North America um, you can have a relatively easy life and then if you have you know even a, a modicum of reasonable income you can have a very comfortable life we have enough food um, there's nobody starving um, in the first world really whereas there are in in other developing parts of the world that just don't have enough food from one day to the next um, so th that's not really the point the point is it, unless we seek challenges in the first world we we don't necessarily have those challenges which our our bodies and our minds adapted to over hundreds of thousands of years to be able to deal with and therefore we're not trained it's like if you don't go to the gym if you don't do exercise your body gets soft um, and mentally also if you don't have physical challenges your, your brain gets soft you're not used to pushing yourself and I think um, you, you mentioned uh, being on a bike, so I'm assuming you cycle. You, if you cycle a lot, then you're used to some physical challenges. You know, you're cycling around, you, know, you need to go cycling around the Lake District or the Yorkshire Dales or, you know, a lot of parts of the UK or further afield if you've cycled in, in Europe. Um, you know, look at the Tour de France, for example. Um, there's plenty of challenges there in terms of um, steep hills and long days and long distances you can cycle. Um, and you know that's a physical challenge but unless you decide to go out and do that you're not going to be up against that so um what i'm saying is most of us are not going to be fit for those challenges unless we put ourselves up for those challenges and i think the thing is that you you put yourself in a position where you're doing things in the outdoors that do challenge your skills they do challenge your abilities they do challenge your uh, psychology but do it in a constructive way so that you over time you gain experience you gain fitness both mentally and physically and you develop over time to be able to deal with more and more and more so yes some big journeys that you see other people doing if you've got no experience in that form of journeying will look overwhelming or will just look like a lot of hard work for maybe not a lot of gain of course there is a um there is a satisfaction in overcoming difficulties, of course, and I think that's a key thing in making journeys. Now, you don't necessarily have to go out looking for that um, extreme hardship, but sometimes it happens. You go out for a, a multi-day hike and the conditions are just appalling. You go out for a, a canoe trip and conditions are, are different to what you expect. It's really wet and make the portages underfoot really difficult. Um, there's much more water in the river and that might mean you have to portage more. All of those things happen. Um, but when it comes to just the concept of portaging, I actually don't mind it uh, personally. Um, one thing that I've noticed on trips is when there's no portaging, sometimes you get a bit sick of being in the boat. You know, if you're kneeling all day, it starts becoming hard on your knees. Um, there is some respite in change, you know, as the, the old adage says, change is good as a rest um, and I find that with something like the blood vein trip 
that we do in Canada with clients sometimes. You're paddling, you're paddling, you're running some rapids, you stop, you portage, and the portage is a nice change, you stretch your legs, um, you're exercising your body in a different way, you're, um, and, and the portages aren't so long on a trip like that, the longest portage is a few hundred yards, and so even if you have to go there and back and there again, which you normally do on a, on a longer trip because you've got a lot of food and equipment with you, um, food is the main thing, um, you're doing a couple of runs but even so, you know, walking 600 metres or a kilometre in total, it's not the end of the world. Um, and at the end of a trip, you feel strong. You feel strong upper body, you feel strong in your back, in your, you know, in your core, you feel strong in your legs because you've been using your whole body to negotiate the terrain. And to me, I, that's enjoyable. Um, when you're doing more flat water trips, I don't know, like Algonquin, for example, where unless you're paddling on something like the Petawawa, if, you, if you're paddling from lake to lake to lake, some of those portages are going to be longer. They might be, you know, 800 metres, a kilometre, a kilometre and a half, and you're having to go backwards and forwards. But those woods are beautiful. Um, I remember doing a trip in Algonquin um, in the fall, and I was there specifically for that reason because I wanted to see all the maples in the fall colours, the yellows and the, the gold and yellows and oranges and reds. That was why I wanted to be there and it was quiet because most people have finished their summer vacations and I think we saw one boat in, in nearly a week, or two boats actually, in nearly a week of, of doing this trip in Algonquin. Um, and yes, there were some quite long portages on that trip and the longest one I think was 1.8k and we walked it, we walked back, you know, we walked it with some kit, we walked back, I walked with the canoe and Amanda walked with the rest of the kit. Um, but it was beautiful woodland and, you know, on the walk back we, we could take, you know, we had compact cameras, we could take photographs of the leaves and the woods and just enjoy the, a walk through the woods, unencumbered on the way back and then you carry the the rest of the gear back through and yes you've walked 6k or five and a half to 6k but so what you know five and a half k walking through the woods beautiful woodland is a pleasurable thing and yes um it was muddy and yes i was up to my knees in mud in places um but it's it's not that bad um i'd rather be doing that than being sitting in an office somewhere um in a stuffy air-conditioned environment um feeling like I'm getting weaker and softer um, by the minute because I'm sat in a chair. Um, you know, at least I'm out there exercising my body, enjoying the environment. Um, and to me, it doesn't feel like a hardship. And I think that's what I'm getting at. It's like, yes, there can be physical exertion. Yes, you can have rain and hail blowing into your face and you can think, yeah, this is quite uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, it's what, what's the alternative? What would you rather be doing? Um, and, and frankly, I wouldn't rather be doing anything other than that. I wouldn't rather be doing anything other than being outdoors and enjoying the outdoors. Um, and we sort of say outdoors as well. That's a weird concept. You know, it's like, like the natural state is indoors and we go outdoors. Well, outdoors is our natural state. Indoors is the unnatural state. So I enjoy being out in nature, um, traveling or camping, and whatever um, the conditions are, I'll accept that. I think you need to accept what the conditions are and adjust. And yes, of course, sometimes conditions become so extreme that you need to pull out for your own safety or the safety of others with you. But until it gets to that point, you endure, you get stronger. Um, 
Nietzsche has a bad name because of his association, because the Nazis used a lot of his philosophy to justify their, um, justify their disgusting philosophy. But Nietzsche as a whole, his concept of what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you don't have to be right up against death to be made stronger. You know, challenge, um, endurance, they're all things to be enjoyed either at the time or in retrospect. So um, I don't think we have to go looking for being uncomfortable to enjoy the outdoors, if that's what you're asking. Do I think challenge and pushing yourself is part of a rewarding wilderness trip that we choose to make um, as an alternative to just having a soft first world lifestyle? Yes, and that's a choice I'm, I'm happy to make. So I hope that answers your question. Um, I, Go and do a canoe trip, particularly if you're a cyclist. I think you might find a canoe trip relatively easy if you're used to cycling around everywhere, to be honest. Okay, my phone's locked itself. Hang on. Next question. This is a question about knives. Mora Companion knife. Ray Tellier asks, hi Paul, I recently got a Mora Companion. My friends say it will not hold up in the field. Have you ever seen a Mora fail in your travels? And are you planning any classes in the United States this year? Please keep up the Ask series as I'm learning a lot, Ray. Well, I'm glad you're learning a lot, Ray. Um, to answer the question about running classes in the United States, no, I'm not. Um, I have no plans to run courses in the United States. Um, but if somebody wants to host a course, um, obviously there's certain things that we need in terms of resources, um, both man-made resources and natural resources to be able to run, say, an elementary program. But I would be happy to entertain running in one of my elementary programs in the States, but I would need somebody on the ground to help me um, help me liaise with you know local clients as well as you know the logistics of doing that because clearly i can't jump on a transatlantic flight with everything that i have here in the uk to run an elementary program for you know 10 or 12 students and um, there's certain base camp items and those sorts of things that we would need to have in place but i'm happy to entertain that if somebody wants to if you or somebody else wants to uh, help facilitate that that's the first question um, or the second question answered first. The other part about Moras, um, if you're talking about a standard Mora companion, the first thing I'll say about them is that is the standard knife that we hand out on courses to our students as a, as a basic bushcraft knife. Um, and I'm very happy to do so and I'm confident that for most jobs that will be an absolutely fine knife and people can carry on using those for years and years and years and years and years with no problems whatsoever. Where they do fail, and the only place I've ever seen them fail, is when people bat on with a Mora Companion. They have a tab tang and they have a handle moulded onto that tab tang, plastic and rubber uh, comp composite if you like, um, the steel's very nice, the carbon steel, it sharpens to a good edge, it stays in good condition, it lasts a long time, it holds an edge. You can carve well with the Mora Companion, you can make good feather sticks, you can fillet fish quite nicely with them, you can prepare small game with them. Um, you can do an awful lot with them and they're light and they're robust and the sheath is robust. Where they fail though, where I've seen them fail, 
not all of them, maybe one or two percent um, is batoning through wood that is a bit tough to baton. And what happens is the handle cracks because of the pressure on it and the tab tang comes away from the handle. That's the way I've seen them break most often. Occasionally, when people have been hitting, you're hitting it on the tip, you're pushing down on the handle. I've seen two, I've got two in my collection of broken mores that I show to people how they can break. Two where the tab tang itself is actually sheared um, down through the metal and that's an actual metal f uh, material failure and that then has caused the handle to come off. So that it's not that the handle broke off and then the metal failed, the metal must have failed first for the handle then to come off and you can see it sheared all the way down. I've got photographs of that if anybody's interested to see that. Um, in fact, I will try and put a screenshot of one of those failures in the video. So if you're listening to this as the podcast, go to the video um, at this same timestamp as you're at with the with the audio they're, they're both synced to the same time so whatever the time is now on the podcast go to the video at the same time and you will see a screenshot now okay so you can see there that that metal has fractured um, and you can see the structure of the metal um, that's the only time i've seen them so seen them break so my, my point there would be if we're if we're running a course and that happens, I will give somebody a new knife. Um, they're still great knives, they don't cost a lot of money. If you want something more robust, then buy the robust version of it, the strong version of it that's got thicker metal. I've not seen them break batoning. Um, I've not tested the full tang version. We talked a bit about the full tang in the previous one. Um, as you'll have gathered from episode 23, I don't spend a lot of time looking at knives and the latest knives i just use what i've got in front of me um, and i have i have an you know the pk1 i haven't got it on me now it's in my rucksack there um pk1 that i often carry is a is four and a half millimeter thick steel there's no taper in the tang um i won't break that batoning and that's why i have a knife that size even a four mil you know woodlaw type knife woodlaw clone is not going to break battening um getting down to three mil i've never seen one break i've got a three mil um one full tang knife that's always been fine and i've never heard of anybody else's breaking unless somebody's done a bad job with tempering the metal um, but in terms of the the thickness that's fine but everything has a breaking point you know if you stuck a three i'm sure if you hammered a three mil full tang knife into a tree um with the blade um, horizontal rather than vertical and then applied enough force downwards it would break but I wouldn't recommend trying that because if you get bits of metal flying off um, you know you've got eye injuries and all sorts of things were you know potentially happening there that's not something that I would recommend but I know for sure that when um, certain bushcraft knives were developed that those sorts of tests were put in place with four mil steel and it was very very difficult to break them you had to basically put a scaffolding pole for leverage on the knife handle and really wrench it. You're never going to exert that sort of force using it, even if you're using it in an emergency where you've got lots of adrenaline and you're trying to cut through something to you know, free a friend or whatever it is, you're not going to break one. So I would say four mil full tang minimum for real wilderness use. And that's why my wilderness knife, 
my PK1 wilderness knife is four and a half mil steel, um, three sixteenths of an inch, um, because it's made not to break in a place where you know you can baton, you can split, you can do all of those jobs with it, you can prise things if you need to, um, where I can't get resupply. Now, if I was carrying an axe, and I definitely had the axe with me for all the splitting jobs, then I'd be happy to carry a Mora Companion because I'm only going to be using it for carving, cutting, slicing, skinning, um, filleting, those sorts of jobs. I'm not going to break a Mora doing that. So to go back to your original question where you say it's not fit for the field, it depends what you want to do with it. If you, if you want to do all those light day-to-day -day jobs, absolutely perfect. If you want to start whapping it through logs to split them, most of the time it's probably going to stand up to it but if that was my only knife in the wilderness I wouldn't be doing that with it I'd either be using an axe in combination with it or I'd be carrying a stronger knife that's not going to break battening that that that's that but for you know 15 pounds 15 dollars whatever they cost these days absolutely fantastic tool and for anybody starting bushcraft I would say just get away from this obsession with handmade expensive knives yeah, it's like people learning to write wanting to buy a Mont Blanc pen. It's stupid. Yeah, buy a Mora, get some skills. Yeah, too many people spend too much time getting a shiny knife and not enough time getting skills. Bushcraft's about skill. And the last thing I would leave on that um, front is when you go and visit people like the Hadza, hunter-gatherers in Africa who live off the land by their knowledge and all they own is a cooking pot, a pair of thongs, they've got some shorts, they've got a bow and arrow that they've made themselves, a hand drill set, and the knife on their belt is cheap, soft steel, the sort of thing that most bushcrafters would be embarrassed to even admit they owned. Um, that puts things in perspective for me. It's not about having a shiny knife that's, you know, of a particular type of steel with a particular handle with, you know, fancy um, rosetted, um, you know, bolts. That's nice to have, that's a nice thing to own, but it's not necessary for bushcraft. What's necessary is knowledge and skill. And I will keep banging that drum until I go to my grave. It's about knowledge and skill. Yep. The kit is a bonus. Yep. And to get started with bushcraft, you don't need to spend two, three, four hundred pounds or four hundred dollars on a fancy knife. And a lot of which you're paying for the time of the person who's made it. Not not saying they shouldn't be that expensive. If you want a nice handmade item, you should pay for that person to earn a living doing that. Yeah. What also annoys me is people who look at expensive handmade knives and say, oh, that's too expensive, it shouldn't be that much. Really, how much is your time worth? If you spent two days making something, how much would you want to be paid? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. So all power to um, people you know, like Ben Orford or Tiger Knives or Simon Furnham or Will Adams or anybody else who makes handmade knives. Good, and I hope you manage to make a living from it and, and you produce some fantastic stuff. But equally, all the people who are sort of knife Nazis who say you have to have a Woodlaw clone made like this that costs 400 pounds before you can do bushcraft. No, you don't. Look at the hunter gatherers who use knives that you'd be embarrassed to use. Mora knives work really, really well. You just need to know the limitations. Every single material has a limitation. Every single thing, if you push it hard enough, will break. And the thing to know about Mora companions is that some of the things that we do in bushcraft, namely batoning, you can break a knife. Um, doing that. 
other knives, full tang, you won't. I haven't tested the Mora full tang yet for that. I'll be doing that at some point. Hopefully that answers your question. I had a bit of a rant there. I know some of you like the rants. Um, that's my rant for the day um, about knives, but that's not a rant at you, Ray. It's a really, really good question. Use your Mora, just be careful when you're battening. If you're in a wilderness situation where you can't resupply, don't baton with it. Make sure you've got an, a, an ax with you for splitting down uh, wood for firewood or for carving or whatever it is that you're doing. Last question, quick one here from Jake. Jake asks, hi Paul, I'm in the market for a new day sack and would love to hear what you recommend and the reasons for your choice. Thanks for taking the time to read this email. No worries, Jake, my pleasure. Right, so you haven't said where you are, Jake. Um, you haven't said what you want to do, um, what time of year, whether it's winter or summer. But as a general recommendation, um, the pack that I use a lot these days, it's sat there right next to the camera, is um, the Berghaus Munro 30. And that's the, the backpack, the day pack that was in my um, what to put in a day pack for, uh, for a hike in the woods or something like that, whatever the title is, some combination of those words. Um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's on YouTube and it's in, in my blog as well. Um, classic, um, very simple, single compartment, day pack, not too heavy for what it is, very tough, and that's one of the things I like about it. Um, it's not too heavy for hiking within the hills, you can get lighter weight stuff today of course, but it's fine. Um, in the woods it's very good because it's tough. Um, I'm on my second one that I've ever had in my life. Um, the first one I had, I wore all the material on the straps out, just from putting it on and off and carrying it. Um, I used to use it in town as well, so I'd sometimes be carrying it on one shoulder and basically the material surrounding the padding on the, on the straps went. But that was after, you know, 10 or 12 years of use uh, and a lot of use. Um, the other day pack which I've used that I quite like um, is the Carrymore SF Sabre 35. And one of the things I like about that, in contrast to the, the Berghaus Monroe, is that if you want to organize lots of little bits of kit. So some courses that I run, you know, when I'm out with, with, with clients and out with students during the day, and I want to have things organized rather than just stuffed into, a, into one main compartment and a top pocket, um, the Sabre 35 has two side pockets. So you can put a, for example, you can put a Crusader mug and a Crusader bottle in there in one side. Uh, you can put a first aid kit in the other side, for example, it's typically what I do. And then you've also got some zips at the top, which slide, um, which you can slide things down the side. And if you're not wearing your knife and your saw on your belt, you can slide those down one side. Um, you can slide a map down the other side and it's all, it's all organized and easily accessible. There's a top pocket on the top, which is handy, always in a day pack. I'd always look for that at least as a bare minimum, single compartment, top pocket, and then oh, it's got the main compartment as well. So Sabre 35, I like. Berghaus Monroe 30, I like um, for just as general purpose. Now, if you're out in the winter as a day pack, you're gonna need more clothes. You might need to carry a flask or a small stove or, or whatever. Um, I just use my Sabre 45 without the side pocket. So one that I use for for, for, with side pockets for camping in the summer, side pockets off and use it as a day pack in the winter. I've used that for winter mountaineering in Scotland as well, because you can get crampons and a helmet and all those sorts of stuff in as well. 45 litre is a good day pack for winter. 
30 to 35 is a good day pack size for summer. You can get everything you need in there, water bottles, waterproofs, you know, spare maps, uh, sandwiches, those sorts of things for being out in the day. And always remember to take some sort of shelter with you. Even if you're only planning to be out for the day, put um, a tarp in there if you're in the woods, put a bothy bag, a group shelter for, for the hills, or put, even if you just have a, an orange survival bag um, generally just in the bottom of your day pack you can cut it to make it into a tarp in the woods and you can get into it as a shelter to keep the wind and the rain off in the hills that's a good thing always to have in your day pack and always remember to put a head torch in your day pack as well because um, if it gets dark you might have to stop and spend a pretty unpleasant night out whether it's in the hills or in the woods whereas if you've got a head torch you can probably find your way back to your car or your accommodation or your tent or the railway station or whatever it is so head torch and spare batteries and at least a survival bag and all the other stuff that you need will fit into one of those packs that I talked about and that's that's my recommendation. I'll link through to that um, what to pack for a day hike in the woods video as well in the show notes so you can uh, you can check that out but that's that Berghaus Munro 30 that's in that video and that's a question I get a lot as well what's that um, what's the day pack you use so that answers that question as well. That brings me to the end of this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Um, I'm going to have another brew now and knock down camp um, before I head off to do a few of the things that I need to do in preparation for next week's courses. I've got an elementary course coming up and I've got a woodcrafter axe course, um, axe and campcraft course coming up as well in the next few weeks. So looking forward to those, looking forward to seeing the people that are coming on those. Um, I've been putting a fair bit of behind the scenes and fun stuff on Snapchat. I know a lot of people think Snapchat's just full of naked selfies. Um, I'm not posting naked selfies on Snapchat. I'm posting little snippets of what we're up to in the woods and what we're up to on courses on Snapchat. So if you don't already follow me on Snapchat, I'm Paul Kirtley. My username is Paul Kirtley on Snapchat. Find me there. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll put a link in, under the YouTube video as well. That's, it's just more video content. Um, one of the things I like about Snapchat is the fact that I can do a, a short video snip, upload it um, from my phone, and then I'll do another one later on that goes up from my phone, and the app basically splices everything together. So you watch that in the evening and you get a little video blog of my day in the woods. I, I don't have the time to make that sort of video blog and edit it at home, um, so it's doing that job for me. So if you want to follow what we're doing in the woods, what Spoons and I are doing, or Matt and I are doing in the woods when we're running courses, then you'll be able to see that um, by following me on Snapchat. So hope to see you there. Uh, take care and see you on episode 25 of Aspore Kirtley, if not on Snapchat in the meantime. Take care. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>